0: What is up, guys? Welcome back. And we are now joined by none other than Ansel and CK for a very, very special episode of FedWatch. So I'm going to shut up and listen.
1: What is up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of Watch. My name is Ansel Linder. I'm here with my co-host, Christian, and this is a macro show for Bitcoiners. We are live recording on Bitcoin Magazine's YouTube channel. So if you're listening to the podcast version, if you're an audio listener, Go over and join us on the live stream every Tuesdays at 3 p.m. Eastern. That's This is our, our block, our segment. Uh, appreciate everyone that comes for this time and supports us. Audio listeners, get over here. Leave a like, comment. If you agree with our contrarian takes or not, put it down in the comments. Anyway, Christian, how are you doing, my man?
2: I'm doing good, and I just wanted to highlight that if you do watch the live stream or you do watch this episode on any of the platforms that we post video – Uh, youtube bitcoin tv rumble uh, amongst uh, some of the top ones Uh, we do share a lot of charts on the show ansel puts in a tremendous amount of research to uh you know make sure we not only have audio commentary but you know we can we can kind of share the the visual and the data aspect of it too so um definitely one of the big highlights of of watching but of course, podcast is fantastic, too, and that's how I consume this show. Uh, sometimes I even listen just to, to recap on uh, on some of the details uh, because there's just so much dense information that many times, you know, has proven itself to be prophetic. So uh, Antle really digs up really high signal. So uh, today's show is no different, and episode number 100 of Doing FedWatch Watch. Uh, we have a banger for you guys. That's for
1: sure. Listening to the audio version, I went back and listened to a bunch of episodes so I could pull out some predictions that we've made uh, throughout the last 100 episodes and see you know, how well our predictions have come out. So we're going to cover that at the end. First up, we're going to cover Japan, yield curve control, U.S. growth fears, and anti-fragmentation in Europe. So I got a lot of charts. Yeah, I, do, I will do a companion post to this. So... Uh if you're an audio listener, you can find that.
2: Heavy schedule, guys. Things are yeah. falling apart. We're gonna cover it
1: all. <laughs> all Angel. right. So jump, <laughs> let's go. Jump on. into Japan. All right. So Japan, if you guys haven't been um following the news here, Japan is in big, big trouble. All right. Next you can go to the next slide. Um the before we get into the exact yield curve control that's happening, um, I wanted to cover a little bit of the background. Um QE started in Japan in 2001. They have been in like a depression since 1990. Um, of course, QE didn't work. And then in 2013, they started QQE. So everyone knows that QE is quantitative easing. QQE is qualitative and quantitative easing. And they they were supposed to do a quote, shock and awe. So just buy everything, buy ETFs, buy all sorts of government assets, everything. Uh, To try to show the change in inflation expectations, to show the public that they were just being irresponsibly uh, dovish, right? They're just spending, spending, uh, printing, printing, printing. Of course, this didn't work either, starting in 2013. So in 2016, they brought in yield curve control, and you'll see this as YCC abbreviated a lot of times. So they did Q, QE, yield curve control. I mean, they just kept getting more and more stimulatory and they kept getting lower and lower inflation. Interest rates went negative. I mean, the, if, if anything tells you that QE doesn't work, it's, it's Japan, but that's what's brought us here today. So right now they have uh, the 10-year uh, JGB, the uh, Japan, Japanese government bond, pegged at a ceiling of 25 basis points. And you can see that on this chart here. Uh, Right now, the whole world has this inflation hysteria going on, and so rates are trying to rise in in, uh, Japan, but that peg, the yield curve control, is kinking the curve right there at the 10-year mark. Uh, So there's a battle going on right now between the Bank of Japan and the market to see if they can actually keep that peg in place. What I think is interesting is they call this yield curve control, but really, it's not controlling anything in the yield curve it's just obvious kink at that one spot in the yield curve so uh, to me this is a complete failure of yield curve control and that's what i've been saying for a long time i don't think they're going to be able to keep this peg Uh, if you go to the next slide this is the last couple months of this 10-year jgb and you can see in just in the last couple of weeks, it's really blown out. It's gone all the way up to, I believe, 41 basis points. So that's 65% over the cap, the, the top of that ceiling on the yield curve control. So for me, this they have failed to, uh, to follow through with this yield curve control.
2: Can you just explain to the people who may be a little lost, like their goal is to keep it at that line? so when you see that it goes above and below or you know make sure that doesn't pass that line yes when you see it spiking extremely uh way above it um that's failure right and you can see the 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 spikes are are growing
1: in my mind that's failure um it could be different parts of the day like so end of the day the central bank is done with their operations for the day, but the market continues to trade for another hour, or whatever, and then yields blow up. So, uh, and then the next morning, they co- The central bank comes in and they reestablish the peg. But um, in my opinion, they have failed because it's going dramatically over the the top of this this uh, range. Does that answer your question?
2: No, totally. That makes a lot of sense.
1: A better uh, depiction is on the next slide. If you go to slide four, this is um, a visual of the evolution of this yield curve band that they've been trying to keep rates in. You can see back in 2016, it started at plus and mi- plus or minus 10 basis points. Then it looked like it was going to break out of there. They weren't going to be able to control it, so they put it to plus or minus 20 basis points. Then once again, in 2021, it looked like it possibly could break out of that range. So they increased it to plus or minus 25 basis points. And now everyone's kind of expecting the BOJ to maybe go to 50 basis points, right? To, to move this range uh, because they're buying all the government bonds. Um, if you go to the next slide, there's an image of that is the amount of government bonds that they're purchasing and you can see all the way over on the right there's just this one bar for the last week where they've done five times uh, as many purchases as the average of the last say six years so um, they're buying everything up they have more than 50 percent of all outstanding jgbs uh, and they still cannot control this this chart
2: is shocking it's honestly shocking and uh, Matthew Pines who was on yesterday he shared a tweet uh, a few months ago that has got me and Bitcoin Tina talking a, a lot but this idea of the, the fugoid cycle um, which is like as um, more interventions are being made the scale of which the interventions that need to be made to continue the effect um, get bigger and like this, this chart literally shows that over time you can see it playing out uh, and if this big spike is the new normal, as we've seen with all the previous big spikes in the past year, um, you know, <laughs> just honestly, jaw dropping.
1: Yeah. That's interesting. You said Fugoy cycle. Is that what it's called?
2: Fugoy cycle. I might be pronouncing that Fugoid. wrong. So Matt, if you're watching, correct, correct me, please.
1: <laughs> well, um, yeah, that's, I I've said that intervention begets more intervention. That's kind of the same idea. Um, yeah, but some people think that they're going to be able to keep this peg. You know, Japan has re like doubled down now in the last 24 hours and said they will keep that 25 basis points. Now, how long till they pivot that and go to 50? I don't know. But, um, I mean, they have, it's kind of a perfect storm over there in Japan. They have, uh, inflation ticking up for the first time in 23 years or something. It's gone over 2%. Um, and well, not inflation, I guess you should call it price. Increases, uh, CPI. Right? Yeah, CPI. And uh, they also have the uh, U.S. dollar exchange rate is blowing out. So if you go to the next slide, chart number or slide six, you can see this is a monthly chart. So just in the last four months, it's really screamed north from about 115 to 135. Uh, so this has a lot of people worried that it's going to affect what's known as the carry trade. Now, I'm not an expert in the carry trade, but from what I understand, they borrow in uh, Japanese yen at these low rates, you know, negative rates or very low uh, 0% rates. And then they invest in foreign assets, either foreign treasuries or something. So they get that spread, right? Um, they get the arbitrage. And uh, there is worry that if this Bank of Japan allows this rate to go too high in their yield curve control, um, it could crash the whole system, right? And this is one of the biggest trades in the world. All financial institutions of any size do something with the Japanese carry carry trade. So uh, what are your thoughts on the Japanese yen and their CPI and all of this, Christian?
2: We've talked about this before. Uh, I think we are the ones who coined economic hurricane, which is a term that I'm hearing more and more, but it's just a complete disaster. I don't know how else, I don't know what other, Uh, information I can add. Um, That's just, you know, my observation. And yeah, I mean, more intervention to more intervention. Um, All of these systems um, are getting more volatile and everything that was built on top of them that that requires any resemblance of stability um, is going to get shook to the core. So, uh, you know, I think, you know, we're seeing that with Japan and you know as japan gets worse the contagion in the real system that we've seen kind of small bits of contagion in what that looks like in the the bitcoin and crypto ecosystem the contagion in tradfi in the in the traditional <laughs> system uh is it's going to get crazy um and you know these banks these central bankers these politicians um they're going to do whatever they can to try to control it and uh I don't think they're going to be successful. I think they're just going to add to the hurricane.
1: Yeah, I mean, they're, they're in danger of losing confidence. That's a big deal. Uh, I think the Fed actually comes out looking the best in all these situations. And s- same with the U.S. economy, because as we'll cover here in a second, the um, uh, ECB is also having problems with, their, with people trusting them or their credibility is the word I'm looking for. And uh, Japan, if they lose this peg, they're going to lose all credibility. One thing I thought that was interesting was this move in the yen versus the dollar is not really depicted all that much on the Bitcoin price. So uh, the Japanese yen or Bitcoin price in Japanese yen uh, has fallen very similar to the amount that the dollar uh, pair has fallen. I think um, it's about five percentage points less, but it's not that big of a deal. They, the, bitcoin priced in japanese yen did not cross the cycle high yet you know like the previous cycle high from 2017 where the us dollar price did uh so i I think that's interesting there might be something to dig in a little bit deeper on the yen price of bitcoin that's all i have for japan you got any more comments on japan
2: i mean we've had a pretty consistent message uh on this podcast which is um bearish japan bearish europe bearish china uh, well, moderately you know moderate u.s bullish bitcoin that's kind of been and then bitcoin obviously you know is part of all of those other things but um we are seeing more and more evidence that japan is now looking good um so on to the next one
1: okay one last point before we leave japan i forgot so they they have the same inflation target that the u.s has two percent Uh, Same as the ECB. So all the major central banks are targeting 2%. And this is the first time in like 20 years that Japan has been over 2%. So um, just thought I'd throw that in there at the end. Okay, next part up we have is the U.S. situation. So, um, I mean, there's a lot of U.S. numbers coming out out of uh, the U.S., all these manufacturing surveys, PMIs, purchasing manager stuff, um, just all over the board, everything looks very bearish, um, especially inventory numbers and um, order order numbers like um, future expected order numbers. All of these things are looking very bearish and we're starting to hear this term bullwhip effect everywhere and that is what we have talked about. Once again, we said, look, we, you with stimulus, you pull demand forward and now you're left with like a pocket of lower demand. And people, the prices rise. It taps everybody out, and now they can't, um, you know, make ends meet. So th- this bullwhip effect is: you front load all this demand, and now it snaps back into recession. Um, I've seen that all over the place now, and um, it's funny we've been talking about that for a long time. Okay, the the charts that I have. Sorry, guys, I was I didn't go into my slides yet, but let's do the first slide for the Fed. This is the New York City Fed uh, has this. it's like a algorithmic forecasting tool. I can't remember the exact title for it. It's something uh, stochastic engineering, something or other, but it's like their AI for economic policy. Um, It's still in development, but I wanted to show you guys what this is saying for the U S economy, because fed, even in front of Congress just yesterday or two days ago said U S recession is not his base case but everything around us is screaming recession. This is just a table from this uh, economic AI from the Fed is showing this year's growth, negative 0.6%, and next year's growth, negative 0.5%. So even this econometric model, algo, AI thing is showing recession, negative GDP print. And I mean, this is gonna become so obvious to people in the next few months that Powell, I think, is going to have to pivot. This is just a visual representation of this. And you notice the right side ends up looking a lot like the left side after we have the COVID crisis and some supply chain issues. And now we're just going to settle out back to low growth, low inflation. And that's what we've been predicting for a long time. Thoughts, Christian?
2: I mean, in terms of Powell pivoting, it would be honestly jaw dropping after the confidence in which he has kind of like moved forward with these increases in interest rates over the past uh, three. Is it? It's been three FOMC meetings. Um, is that correct? Uh,
1: three 25, 50,
2: and 75. Yep. So, I mean, it would just be really shocking. And I've been kind of talking about this on Twitter and on the show, but. I'm just interested if, you know, if the market will bounce back hard or if the realities of recession have hit so concretely um, that it can't be shaken. I think we were in a recession before, but there was this wealth effect where people felt rich and it kind of like made this virtuous cycle kind of move forward. But now that the Fed has tried to quell inflation and uh, dampen that down the economic reality that was there the whole time is really starting to set in. And there's kind of like the opposite effect. So it would be, you know, it's almost like when good news happens during a a Bitcoin bear market, like the price doesn't react to it. It would be honestly shocking if the Fed pivots. And then, you know, maybe there's a there's a sell the news opportunity. Um, Maybe nothing happens, but that would be shocking and scary to a lot of people that are counting on fed pivot and very strong reaction.
1: Yeah, and a lot of people are I mean they're they're worried about a recession and its effects on bitcoin, but there have been recessions throughout bitcoin's history, just maybe not a full-on hardcore recession in the United States, but you know, we've had recessions in Europe, we've had recessions in emerging markets. And so um what, what these these numbers are showing is a very slight recession, uh, long but slight recession for the United States. And that's kind of returning to normal. I mean, Bitcoin has had these 20x, 50x runs back when we had the same story. I mean, we were just returning to that same story that Bitcoin has been succeeding in the whole time. I, I think it's the inflation narrative for Bitcoin is kind of dead because We're not going to see a lot of inflation. Let's go to the next slide because, sorry, I have one more from this. Um, I just
2: wanted to throw it out there, too. We've been talking about, like, we have to be careful about the inflation narrative because we don't want people to go point at us and say, like, you were wrong. And I think I see a lot of that. I see I watch on traditional finance media. They're like, well, obviously, Bitcoin wasn't an inflation hedge. Like, ha, 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 like those silly Bitcoiners. Uh, So that was a very interesting thing that, you know. We, we had tried to call out on this show, and it's, again, coming to fruition, but continue.
1: Yeah, so this is um, just from their forecast, again, showing the inflation. This is the PCE measurement, which is the, like the CPI, but it's preferred by the Fed. And you can see it's just a return to normal. Um, and if Bitcoin relies on an inflation narrative, this is going to... This would be a bearish chart for Bitcoin. But in my mind, I mean, just returning to normal is returning to Bitcoin's cycles, you know, where it goes 10, 20 X. And that's good for Bitcoin. Because if you have this uh, stagnation, so a lot of people were calling for stagflation, but stagnation is better for Bitcoin. Low growth, low inflation, no opportunities anywhere, right? Other than asset prices. And in that environment, Bitcoin... Is like a low risk opportunity. It's it's something out there that has this green shoot type uh, mentality around it, where there's innovation, and it's also a, um, a asymmetric, you know, return asset. So uh, I think this low growth, low inflation environment is going to be very, very beneficial to Bitcoin, and that's what I see us coming back to. Uh, For you know, until the next major crisis, maybe in seven, eight years down the road.
2: I mean, we'll we'll have to wait and see. Uh, You you've had a very good track record with uh, some of these uh, directional bets. Um, Obviously, more along the lines of the last two years, but uh, on this show. But uh, we'll see how it all plays out. But I honestly think the most important thing is that as Bitcoiners, we seek truth and we try to explain Bitcoin in the most sound way possible, so that way we don't get caught. You know with our explanation blowing up in our face inflation hedge um what's the other what was the other big one that uh s2f uh stock to flow uh model in particular i think stock to flow as a concept makes a lot of sense obviously a model is just a model and it can't be right forever it's only one side it can't model demand it can't model a lot of other market factors but um it's important to talk about the realities of bitcoin and you know i think talking about the realities of the existing system is also important that's what we do on the show of course but when you see what's happening with japan when you see what's happening with europe when you see what's happening with the us which is the most bullish scenario out of all of them um it's it's scary and you know bitcoin 21 million increasing hash rate certainty verifiability permissionlessness um immune from the politics of of uh the existing system so that's why bitcoin's gonna go up and then on top of that it's an internet protocol that is built on you know has exponential network effects built on exponential network effects so i mean that that's that's the base case there but ansel i know we have a lot more to jam on and uh, i'm sure you want to get back into uh, central bank and
1: fed yeah well i agree with everything you said there um a lot of people don't agree with us. It's, it's a contrary opinion to be deflationist or at least be uh, saying that this is going to end in a deflationary collapse or uh, spike of deflation. Uh, but that's what we've seen. And I think that's what we're about to see in the next six months is return to the same thing we've seen since the great financial crisis. So uh, that has been bullish for Bitcoin. Uh, and I think it will be again. The only thing else I have is talking about the ECB before we jump into our 100th episode uh, celebration. But um, so the ECB is fighting this anti-fragmentation commentary. So we played a clip from Christine Lagarde last week and she was getting a lot of questions about, hey, what about Italian bonds? They're blowing up. These credit spreads are blowing out. Is there going to be this possibility of a European debt crisis 2.0? And I think we, we might have been talking about that first here on the show, uh, actually saying those terms, European debt crisis 2.0. And um, uh, so she mentioned that in, in her answer. She kind of looked frustrated. Oh, this anti-fragmentation thing again. She kind of got frustrated. Um, and then a couple of days later, the ECB came out with a new monetary policy tool, very kind of opaque and nondescript of what they're, what it's going to be but they have a new monetary policy tool that will fight this uh, fragmentation risk in credit spreads over there in the EU. Um, one of the things here to explain this a little bit more is that you know each government in the eurozone has a different level of indebtedness right And as the ECB is going to start raising rates or they say they're going to start raising rates, that will pinch the more indebted countries. And that's what's going to make their, their yields and the spreads uh, in their government uh, debts blow out. And that's dangerous. That, that can cause another debt crisis. So um, this anti-fragmentation is very important to the ECB. But now, just today, as you're seeing on the screen here, is Dutch uh, prime minister. Uh, let me pull it up so I have the exact stuff here. Uh, Dutch Prime Minister Mark Rutt said Italy should take charge in managing the cost of its government debt in financial markets. Quote, in the division of labor of the monetary system and the bringing down the spread, the country has to make sure the fundamentals are all right, Rutte said in Brussels. The remark indicates reluctance to extend support to prevent Italy from slipping into a sovereign debt crisis. The nation's bond yields have climbed in recent weeks, which signals the European Central Bank is preparing to raise interest rates to fight inflation. Just skipping down here in this article, Rutt said his outlook on the EU has developed over the years uh, from a rather narrow viewpoint to one in which it is more than just one big internal market. It's a geopolitical powerhouse, that looks after the union's collective security and just break in before one more paragraph is, um, you know, this to me says that they are really seeing that the U S isn't going to provide collective security as much anymore. NATO is going away. You know, the, the EU is going to have to pony up for their own interests, their own geopolitical interests. Uh, they were caught with their pants down, uh, with Russia the last uh, few months. And so they really uh, think that they need to, uh, play a larger geopolitical powerhouse role. Um, So anyway, the last paragraph I wanted to highlight in this article, which of course I will link down in the show notes. um, I am quote, I am really fascinated and positive about the fact that you now see in Italy and other countries reforms taking place, which I was afraid I would never see in my lifetime. we like the idea that you give something in return for reforms so this just tells me this is the uh the mo of the ecb and the eurozone blackmail you know you do what we say we don't care how your people voted we don't care about your democracy we don't care about your laws we don't care about um you know anything about your sovereignty you must obey and we will give you your bailout so um in the end the Italy and Greece and and Spain and stuff, they have the trump card where they can just exit the euro. Um, They don't have to exit the EU. They can just exit the euro. Uh, So we'll see how this develops. But I do feel another European debt crisis is approaching. What say you, Christian?
2: So, I mean, you obviously understand and explain the the kind of like details about the dynamic really well right there. Um, I would actually like for you to kind of zoom out and uh, compare and contrast, like, the the American state system versus the European system. Uh, because the euro, it looks a lot like the dollar, but in terms of how the debt is created and how euros are created and then uh, how that debt is serviced, uh, there's very different dynamics between the two systems. So, uh, you know, I think you've explained it on previous podcasts, but it'd be great to just, short, you know, in brief talk about why it's so important that the Dutch prime minister is talking about Italy in that way. And, you know, why, you know, (laughs) Jerome Powell doesn't, you know, talk from like his state's perspective towards another state in that way. When, when he's talking about um, the, the dollar system.
1: Yeah. Well um, I would have to go and research to make sure I'm hitting all the points, but uh, for a brief explainer, Uh, The Eurozone is a monetary union without a fiscal union. So they, they have many different central banks, many different governments with their own budgets and uh, they can have, like we've seen Greece be very indebted, uh, Italy be very indebted um, and Spain and and the pigs, you know, the Southern countries. So um, that, that's the difference with, with, with the U S there is both a monetary policy at the federal level and a fiscal policy at the federal level. So it's, it's more holistic. Um, Of course, states have their budgets, but they don't have like a state central bank. They have um, a bunch of different banks that they can bank with or whatever. So uh, there there's a slight bit of difference in how the banking structure is set up. Does that make sense? Maybe we'll have to do a whole episode on that.
2: No, totally. It it makes a lot of sense. But again, like, uh, I guess just in the most simple language, why is this affecting Europe so painfully?
1: Why is it affecting Europe so painfully? Well, they, I don't know a short and concise way to answer that, Christian. They have differing fiscal policies, um, different, um, like Germany has always been very, Uh, frugal with their government spending and um, they haven't printed a lot of money uh, from their central bank and things like that, where other central banks in say Italy or Greece, they haven't been so frugal in the past. And so when you put these uh, many uh, different large spectrum of uh, frugality and the role of the state in social spending and stuff like that, uh, you're going to get a vast difference in, their risk structures. And when, when you have, a uh, uh, that those spreads blow out, uh, it causes contagion. It causes people to, uh, get, go bankrupt. I mean, I, I don't know. You, you'd have to bring on an expert in these credit spreads with like a uh, Greg Foss, like we've had on, um, I'm probably not the best person to answer that. Okay.
2: now I mean, I appreciate the the honesty and I appreciate the attempt at the answer. I think that that was helpful. Um, going into you know some predictions that you've actually made about europe you're bearish on the eu um because of this and other issues that misalign incentives amongst these countries you mentioned again these the pig countries the ones uh in the south with the biggest uh debt burden um they always have the trump card because they can just say you know screw off or leaving um talk about like What's your perspective on on the EU and uh, I guess its ability to kind of withstand the this volatility that is just continuing to ramp up?
1: Well, the EU has benefited, you know, from the last fifty to seventy five years of U.S. leadership, um, not only in international uh, institutions, rulemaking institutions like le- the U.S. leadership in the WTO, in the IMF, in NATO, in the UN, even. Uh, you know, that they've benefited off of this rules-based order. They've also benefited off not having to have a military. Like the world didn't want Germany to have a military. I don't even know if they even today want Germany to have a military. So it's like um, the they've gotten the best of all worlds. Then they haven't had to pony up for all of these basic things that any nation state usually has to pay for. Now that's coming to an end. And that's what this Mark uh rut the prime minister of the netherlands was talking about is that he sees a growing geopolitical influence from the eu and they're coming into their own and they need to have a a, a union security force so they they understand that this is changing um and they're going to have to start pointing up now why is that bad for their economy well they they've lived in a bubble they've lived in a security bubble and just like this russia thing has been uh, caught them with their pants down and they've been they're so dependent on foreign energy they're dependent on exports they're dependent on you know international supply chains um, and they don't have a military to back anything up Uh, it's just a really bad situation now when you start having to make hard choices From a family perspective, when you're in a family and you have to make choices between, say, buying shoes and buying a shirt for your kids or putting uh, food on the table, things get heavy really quick. And you start seeing fights within these international systems, these uh, internal systems within the EU. So Hungary doesn't want to play nice with Europe. Italy has uh, been really hit hard by some of the financial sanctions that have been put on by the ecb and the eu and so there's internal rumblings and if they start thinking they're being discriminated against or they they can't get ahead within the eu structure or within the euro structure they could leave um and how will that affect the euro as a currency i mean it would definitely shrink that's one thing but it would probably be a painful way to shrink so credit spreads will blow out Yields will rise, um, all those things. How does that uh, go for my bearish Europe stance?
2: No, I mean, I can see someone in the comments who's, uh, I guess, are a European who thinks you're unsufferable and that you're completely wrong. But, um, you know, about what? the, the reality is, is that, well, I guess the conspiracy is that this is America's fault, which maybe that's true. Maybe that's not. We're just talking about what's happening. So um, I guess that doesn't really matter. Um, I mean, I, I personally think that there's gonna be more jurisdictions to choose from in the future and that those jurisdictions will compete. So uh, that bodes towards breaking down of the EU and who knows what's gonna happen in the US and Canada and other large uh, jurisdictions and you know how, how that will play out. But I think a world where there's more jurisdictions to choose from and those jurisdictions compete for you, they compete for Bitcoiners in Bitcoin and, and capital and, uh, business, then that's a better world for humanity. Um, so I'm a big proponent of the sovereign individual. And I think that there's a lot of aspects of that book that are very directly correct. So massive institutions like the EU must fall for humanity to move forward in my opinion. So it's not a surprise to see it playing out here. Ansel.
1: Yeah. Well, just to respond real quick to the chat. Um, I'm not saying it's not the U.S.'s fault. You know, I, I, over the last 75 years of U.S. leadership, there's been a lot of poverty reduction, right? A lot of uh, great things have happened in the world, um, and now as the U.S., like the whole thesis is that the U.S. is withdrawing, the U.S. is coming home, the U.S. is going back towards a non-interventionist policy, and we don't want to buoy up all these international organizations. Yes, that's the U.S.'s fault. So I don't, I don't understand what the, what, the, what the difference is, if it's the U.S. fault or not, because uh, Europe is going down regardless. They're, they're, the euro is not destined for this world.
2: So you're saying that a CBDC euro is not going to help it? It's
1: <laughs> on oh, the man. blockchain. Yeah, if they want to destroy their commercial banking system, yes, they can do that. Oh, man
2: well hey everything is good for bitcoin at the end so bitcoin is going to be the escape hatch and i mean ultimately you know ansel your thesis is that as europe falls a lot of capital moves to the dollar but a lot of capital moves to the alternative that is bitcoin as well um and bitcoin will will be a a benefactor of of that capital trying to go uh, and find a safe place to 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 live um do you want to add anything to that
1: um, yeah, so as the US withdraws um, and comes home, and we go back to more of a protectionist world, so deglobalization happens everywhere, uh, we also will have the end of a credit bubble, and that's going to hurt everybody. Um, Bitcoin is kind of the safe haven asset in that case. So that's just tick off another box why Bitcoin protects us against a deflating credit bubble as well.
2: All right, so it's our 100th episode, y'all. Uh- Ansel did mm-hmm. the hard work of going through some old episodes to find some great predictions and see how well we did. Um, let's let, maybe it's a victory lap, maybe not. Let, let's hit it, Ansel. Well,
1: yeah, I think uh, the power of any sort of theory is based on its prediction, uh, predictive power. So that's what I kind of tried to do here on the show is I do make predictions. I stick my neck out there I make predictions and I think I'm right more than I'm wrong. So uh, I wanted to pull out a few things. One of the big things we're known for on this show is a strong dollar thesis, the inflation deflation debate. I think we won, we've won that so far. Uh, the dollar has strengthened considerably. There is uh, CPI out there, but you know, we also have the worst supply chains in the last 75 years and it's, only 8% CPI. So I, I I would concede the inflation deflation debate at this point, if we're seeing 50 or hundred percent CPI increases, but right now it, it everything falls in line with uh, supply chain crisis, strong dollar uh, scenario. So Christian, do you think we, we have been more correct on the strong dollar or less correct?
2: Well, it's really interesting because the, the people who would just say, you know, quantitative easing is dollar uh, creation and that, you know, the printer has been going burr nonstop uh, up until the last three uh, FOMC meetings, you know, they're saying inflation is rampant. We are completely right in taking victory laps. Simultaneously, you know, we're we're kind of pointing out that, hey, yes, CPI is going up, but there's a, a lot of things that aren't inflation that explain that right? So supply chains are breaking down. uh, Wars are breaking out. Um, There are sanctions that are being had with major economic producers and suppliers uh, that are disrupting contracts and the ability to supply uh, fundamental uh, components to the, you know, the global economy. So there's a lot of explanations for why prices on goods that Americans you know like that are in the CP- that are in the CPI, why those are going up. And um, again, simultaneously, how do you square the fact that the dollar on the, against the uh, you know, against other foreign currencies is screaming up too. So uh, I think that there's a lot of conflicting information. Uh, but ultimately, the point is that CPI, does not necessarily measure inflation. It just measures the overall cost of these this basket of goods. So uh, there's nothing the Fed can do to affect the fact that, you know, less oil is being shipped from Russia to Western nations. Like there's, you know, that's something that's completely supply chain based. So I think that all those CPIs going up, you uh, our thesis is more correct. I mean, and obviously not 100% correct. It's impossible to 100%. No, that's one of the things that's so wrong with the current system is how opaque it is and difficult to analyze it is. But uh, we, I do think that the facts show that we are more directionally correct.
1: Awesome. Uh, then we've had a battle between or the ba- we've, we called the battle between Bitcoin and the US dollar and the rise of stable coins. I think that was maybe one of our best calls because if you look at like the top five coins on a coin market cap, you have three of them, I think are stable coins, dollar stable coins, and one of them's Bitcoin. So like the, the rise of the US dollar stable coins is nearly complete. And I wrote about this on my newsletter last week, I believe was the flipping is really the US dollar stable coins versus Ethereum, and that just happened. So uh, I think we got that one correct. Thoughts?
2: 100% correct, and uh, I can't take much credit. It was you um, who, back in 2018, was saying it's Tether was the only prominent stablecoin at the time, but Tether and Bitcoin are the only signal here. It's ultimately Bitcoin and Tether against the fiat system, and then ultimately Bitcoin against the dollar. Um, and that's the basis of a lot of our theses that we talk about here. And so far we've been completely correct. I'm on CoinMarketCap right now. It's Bitcoin, Ethereum, Tether, USDC, DNB, which is Binance's token, and then Binance USD. So in the top six, three of them are are stable coins, two are smart contract platforms. And then obviously Bitcoin um, is at the top there. so uh, I have no doubt that stablecoin dominance will continue to increase. Um, and yeah, bearish ETH, bearish ETH. And what happens to Bitcoin in the short term, it's, it's going to be a rough patch here. A, a lot of contagion is just continuing to unfold. And it feels like we're near the bottom, but also who effing knows where the bottom is at the same time? <laughs> who effing knows?
1: Well, one thing that you were, uh, I think, very correct on is... Um, you really pointed out that the U S embodies decentralization more than these other places. So where I was saying, uh, you know, I was coming at it from a different angle. Um, You came at it from the embodying the decentralization um, and that has borne out. I think that has also led to the U S being slightly more friendly than other nations on Bitcoin and a little bit less friendly than other nations to CBDCs. So do you think that was a, that was a correct call?
2: I mean, I would say the the way that the the U.S. Union works is very similar to how the world will work when Bitcoin is the standard, which is that you can leave any of the states, but take your your assets and effectively your working identity with you. So uh, and then those different jurisdictions actively can compete for those that that pool of citizens. So I think that dynamic is going worldwide with Bitcoin. And I think that dynamic has served the U.S. in competing globally and has made the U.S. a better home for Bitcoin, despite many of the U.S.'s issues around being the home of KYC and being the home of the incumbent system and things like that. um, You know, across the board, we've seen that the states competing have made a good home for Bitcoin, whereas we've seen other countries. Have very you know top-down, heavy-handed uh, actions against Bitcoin that don't seem as possible in the U.S.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think we we talk about that all the time, um, and that is really a unpopular opinion because most people just are bearish on the U.S. Um, and we aren't bullish. necessarily. Well, I'm bullish on the U.S., but I think the show is not. Uh, biased towards the u.s it's just looking at these different scenarios like the decentralization and the geographic uh determinism stuff and and saying that you know the u.s has the the advantage uh at least going forward um should we get into some specific claims that we've made let's do it okay so um back on fed number 71 episode 71 that's where i quoted I coined the term European debt crisis 2.0 and that has just gotten closer and closer. Now we're seeing this uh, fragmentation talk out of the European union. So I think that was spot on. Also around that time, um, I was getting very bearish on China and I said that uh, Evergrande was there's going to be a big China slowdown coming in the next three months And there was no such thing as the Thucydides trap that China is going down. They're just one big credit bubble. And that kind of came to fruition as well. Stop me whenever you have a comment here, Christian. Uh, Also around that same time- I mean, we said
2: this at the beginning, uh, bearish China, bearish Japan, bearish Europe, bullish US, very bullish Bitcoin.
1: Yep. And then um, in February- we had a episode where we were talking about lending. I don't know if you remember that one. It was a, uh, I can't remember the episode number, but it came out February 9th. So if you go back on our, you know, history uh, of FedWatch, then you can find the February 9th episode. We, we said something is fishy about block five, something is fishy about all of these, these uh, rates that are changing all of a sudden. And so I think we were ahead of the curve on that one. Um, And then in January,
2: Bitcoiners were the head of the curve on this, to be honest. But in terms of the actually timing when things started to get funky, um, you know, I think that we were definitely, uh, you know, right, right on there when things really started to to feel weird. And uh, yeah, I guess it's become very clear that things are not good for them. Things are not good for most of these lenders. And the contagion is really, really widespread really widespread.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, a lot of Bitcoiners have always said there's something fishy with BlockFi, but we we kind of pointed it out uh, at the time when it was starting to get a little bit more acute. So I think that was a good call. And then in January, um, on my newsletter and on FedWatch here, I talked about kind of nfts peaking at that time and i said i didn't expect it to be like other cycles where some of the altcoin value will flow into bitcoin i thought the nft value would just strictly evaporate into thin air and that's kind of what we've seen from the nft side so christian that's all i have for our predictions i went back about half of all of our shows to pull out some of those so um any final thoughts on the hundredth episode
2: Well, no, I just want to say, uh, Q and P, feel free to jump on and talk about some of these predictions if you want. But when it comes to NFTs, I have a friend from college who, you know, was really interested in NFTs and he was having some, you know, Thought Boy uh, tweets about, you know, the NFT market. And I just was like, don't you mean, you just mean that they're illiquid. So when things are illiquid, when they're not fungible and they get sold, or they get purchased, the value is determined by that one exchange. That's not a market for exchange. Uh, There there are not many, you know, we we have no idea how many actual buyers there are for that one thing at that price. Um, And the price can drop extremely fast because it is a unique object. So um, it's no surprise to me that Um, when the mania dropped when people had to try to value nfts based on their artistic value and not because they think a greater fool is going to buy them at a higher price at a later date um, that of course it dropped there's also a lot of adverse incentives for money laundering and uh, taking losses and doing other kind of uh, dubious irs and tax activity with nfts so um, that's definitely something that can uh, that can be taken into account with some of these dynamic price swings as well.
0: Boo. Boo. I hate the money laundering argument. Money laundering happens with the US dollar. Money laundering happens in the real art world. It's negated. As far as I'm concerned, it's a push. You can money launder on the blockchain if you really want, or you can money launder with cash. So that's not, in my opinion, valid. I do want to touch on something you said because I had someone over the weekend try to show me their NFT portfolio and was going on and on about like, dude, this is a half million dollars worth of, worth of stuff. And I just, I asked them list one of these, put one of them up for sale right now and put it at the price you actually think it's worth. And then talk to me about what the bids are that are coming in for it. Because just because you think it has that value, doesn't mean the market does. Whereas if I were to put one of my Bitcoin up for sale right now, I know the market says it's worth just over $20,000 USD. So there isn't that marketplace with NFTs. And I find it very interesting because then the argument comes around, oh, well, like they're, they're really active and they're bidding and the volume is right. But then you can actually bid your own project. And I've seen this scam. That is the biggest scam in NFTs is not the money laundering. It's the people who buy an NFT then rebid on their own nft with different wallets and continue to drive the price higher creating this hype bubble around this project this nft or whatever and then
2: well there's a tremendous amount of that and there's a, a there's also a lot of you know the i think the CTO of opensea was buying nfts or buying part of the collections before they listed them on their homepage and stuff like that so again, a lot of dubious activity that's unsustainable. Um, but the dynamic of an NFT, I just wanted to point out, is just there, there's not a liquid market. So as soon as the dynamic changes on this hype, and it starts getting sold out, you see the prices drop out. And you know, they very, there's a huge difference between a lot of this like high flying momentum NFT craze, and then real super scarce are where there are actually kind of deep markets and a vast set of long, long collectors. So maybe that changes over time with the, the digital space. But when you are saying, I'm in crypto, but I'm also in NFTs and you're kind of playing that trading game, just know that it's, it's very, very different. Um, and uh, the current dynamics are very liquid and that value evaporates because it actually was only there on paper in the first place.
1: Yeah, at the end of this year, Christian, we got to circle back to this. Uh, we have to have like best memes of the year or something because or maybe you guys will on the live stream. But some of the best memes come from the NFT heists where they right click and they save save image as they're like, yes, you know, uh, that that's some of the best stuff out there. But um, I, I, I a have a couple of comments. Unless, Sorry,
0: actually, I want to share that
1: unless Q has something else, Um, I wanted to just remind the viewers of something before we go. So um, I don't know. Do we have anything else to wrap up?
2: Nope. The the mic is yours, Ansel.
1: Okay. So uh, I say that every week we are at this time, 3 PM Tuesdays on the Bitcoin magazine channel. Uh, Next week, we actually have to roll to Thursday. So I will be out of town and we're going to roll to Thursday at 3 PM Eastern. That's the 7th. I believe. And then we'll be back next uh, the week after that on Tuesday at 3 PM uh, with Joe Carlaseri. And what I want to dive in with Joe on the next uh, t- more when he comes on is trying to form some new narratives for Bitcoin because everything seems to have been killed in the last month or so, you know, the inflation narrative, the stock to flow narrative, all of these other things. And Bitcoin needs to have some, um, you know, new, bottom-up narratives that come out and where what does joe think those are going to be and maybe you know we can hash out some ideas uh, on the show so that's that's all i have for admin notes
2: yeah little housekeeping sure? it never yep. hurt nobody get excited yep. for joe carlos Serre in two weeks and uh don't miss us next tuesday we'll be on next thursday also another bit of housekeeping if you like the podcast and you watch this on youtube Go subscribe to FedWatch on our podcast feed. Catch us there. All these shows are posted there uh, as well. And Ansel, sometimes does shows without me. And, you know, those are very dense and a lot of info in that stuff. So a lot uh, to keep up with. It's an ever-changing world. Bitcoiners have never needed this show more. So make sure to subscribe. And we're going to keep it coming for another 100 episodes, at least. If not more, we're just going to keep it rolling, y'all. Nice shirt, Q. Where can I get it, by the way?
0: Uh, so that perfect segue this and uh so i got i started a new job this week guys i'm really really excited i called a couple ex-girlfriends and actually told them i am now a male model you fucked up so i am now a male model for none other than you guessed it bitcoin magazine so this is our whale shirt and you can get it exclusively at the bitcoin magazine store and use our promo code bm live yeah there you go even chris is rocking it I had another one on yesterday the Don't Feed the Whales shirt. so I'll be I'll be rocking this out cuz I'm now starting my career as a male model and I'm really excited about this. So use promo code BM live.
2: Peace.